0: We are continuing on in our series on This Is Our God. And we've lined up our series on Sunday morning to align with what we're talking about on Tuesday night. And since we're not having a small group this Tuesday night, because we're all going to be at uh, at a national night out, right? We're all going to be out there to help uh, support our church and our community. Um, I figure, you know what, I'm going to take an opportunity— today to talk about one of the attributes or characteristics of God that's not listed in Exodus chapter 34, one of the ones that I think we can't overlook or look past when we are looking at the attributes of God. And this is, we're going to look at the, in Genesis chapter 37, the story of Joseph, and Joseph, the story of Joseph is called by many biblical and non-biblical scholars as one of the most artistic and fascinating stories in all of ancient literature, not just the Bible. And, you know, really, I uh, in the future, I will probably work through a sermon series like we did with Joshua and David just through the life of Joseph because there's so much here. I'm going to take like a 30,000-foot view of this story to get us through and let us see this big characteristic of God's sovereignty, God's providence, as He works through our lives, and I wrestled this week with what to give you as the high points of Joseph's life. But we're going to see eight portraits of the life of Joseph, and these are pictures we see along the way that I hope will allow—I think—will get us to the overall picture of this story and allow us to see how God's sovereignty was moving and working. Through all of the ups and downs in life, to bring him glory. So we're going to look at this morning this this wonderful life of Joseph. I'm going to move quick because we're not going to read 14 chapters of scripture. You know, you can you can you know rest assured there. But I want you to get a understanding of this story. So we're going to have to move quick to catch all of the highlights. So we're going to see here first that Joseph was the favorite son. Listen in Genesis chapter 37, verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. If you remember, Joseph was the son of Rachel, the wife that, that Jacob loved. And the story starts, Joseph is 17 years old. And for 17 years, Joseph has been the golden child. He can do no wrong in the eyes of Jacob. And we know how much he loved Rachel and how Rachel was barren for so many years. And then he gave, God gave Rachel Joseph, and then later in her life gave her Benjamin. But Jacob loved Joseph, which was demonstrated by his robe of many colors, which was a rarity in the ancient world. To have a robe that reflected all of the different color dyes was something that was given really to royalty. And so Jacob bestows this robe upon his son, almost in a way showing that he is the favorite child. So we're introduced to the beginning of the story of Joseph as the favorite son. Because he was the favorite son, number two, he was the despised brother. Verse four, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. And when it comes to Joseph's relationship with his brothers, we are introduced to him really as a tattletale, bringing a bad report about his brothers to his father. So we have Joseph telling on his brothers, and it didn't help when Joseph started sharing the dreams that he was having with his brothers, because these dreams did not paint his brothers in a favorable light. He said, You'll never guess what I dreamed. You, my brothers, were bowing down to me. (laughs) How do you think some siblings would accept that dream? The sun, the moon, the stars are bowing down to me. So one day when his brothers were out in the field, Jacob sends Joseph out to find his brothers out in the field. And as Joseph was coming over the hills, they decided among themselves that they wanted to kill Joseph. The oldest brother, Reuben, says, let's not kill him, but throw him in a pit. Reuben's thought was that if he came back, that he could come back later to save Joseph. But when Reuben is gone, it is the other brother, Judah. His plan is the one that comes to fruition. As the brothers are sitting around the pit, a caravan of Midianites on their way to Egypt pass by. And Judah says, why don't we sell him? And make some profit. Let's read here in verse 26. It says Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let us not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to them. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. What Joseph's brothers did is they killed, they took his robe of many colors. They killed an animal, took the animal's blood, spattered it all over the robe, Joseph's robe, and took it home to their father Jacob and said, a wild animal must have killed Joseph on his way to us. Jacob mourns the death of his favorite son, Joseph. For the next 20 years, Jacob thinks Joseph, his favorite son, is gone. So we see Joseph now being sold into slavery. We see him number three, our third portrait, a slave in a foreign land. This is where we pick up in, in Genesis chapter 39. We see now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. Don't miss what is happening here. Whatever Joseph did, God blessed, even as a slave. It wasn't enough that Joseph was a slave in Potiphar's house, but Potiphar's wife comes up to joseph and starts to make passes at him if you read later in genesis chapter 39 you'll see this part of the story play out and as i read genesis chapter 39 this past week i could not help but pray for the men and women of bethel pray that they would respond to sexual temptation the way that joseph did pray for purity among the men and women of this church, it's in the middle of of, of verse 9 that Joseph says, how can I do this wickedness against God? You see, our, our sin, our sexual sin, is not only a unique sin because it's a sin against our own bodies, a sin against, if we're married, our spouse, but ultimately it's a sin against God. So whether that is with somebody in the workplace or looking at something on your phone or your computer that you should not, our hearts should come back to verse 9 when Joseph says, how could I do this wickedness against God? That should be the response of our hearts. My prayer is that would be the response of men and women at Bethel. Is that how could we do this wickedness against our God? So we see a slave in a foreign land leads us to a pure servant. What a contrast to some of the other stories and characters we meet in Genesis. In this story, Joseph is being tempted by Potiphar's wife. Joseph could have justified and said, in many ways, by saying, No one else will know, no one else will see. Potiphar has given me everything else in his house, why not his wife? But what does Joseph do? He runs. He runs from temptation. The pure servant Joseph runs and Potiphar's wife grabs his coat, setting the stage for him to be, and this is the next portrait that we will see, number five, the slandered prisoner. She accused him and Joseph is thrown into prison through no fault of his own. He is a righteous man, doing what is right and he spends the next 13 years in a dungeon don't you think he asked himself the question God I honored you and yet I find myself in this dungeon because I did what was right where are you God during this time Joseph rises to leadership in the prison. He's given charge of the various people, including one day a cupbearer and a baker who upset Pharaoh. they I don't know, maybe they made a bad meal or something and they were thrown into prison with Joseph. Scripture doesn't tell us how the baker and the cupbearer got there, just that they were there. One night this cupbearer and baker don't sleep well and they have dreams and they wake Joseph up the next morning. And Joseph, filled with the spirit, he interprets those dreams. For the cupbearer, he said, you will live. For the baker, you will die. And that is exactly what happens. Joseph says to the cupbearer, you're going to live. And when you get out of prison, do not forget me. Remember me. Tell Pharaoh about me here in prison. The cupbearer gets out of prison, just like what Joseph said. But he forgets about Joseph. Can you believe that? Someone who could interpret your dream and tell you you're going to live and you forget about him. For the next couple of years, Joseph remains in the dungeon. Until one night, Pharaoh himself has a bad dream and he cannot sleep. And cannot find anyone in Egypt to interpret his dreams. And as he's asking different magicians to interpret his dreams, the cupbearer hears this and goes to Pharaoh and says, I know somebody who can interpret your dreams because... He told me that I would be back in your service as the cupbearer, and it came true. All of a sudden, Joseph is summoned from the prison to stand before Pharaoh. By the Spirit of God in him, he interprets Pharaoh's dreams. Joseph told Pharaoh that his dreams meant there will be seven years of bountiful harvest, seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. Joseph tells Pharaoh, you need a plan. You need to store up food now in the good years to help Egypt make it through the years of famine. Pharaoh is awed by the Spirit of God and Joseph and says, you alone can lead and administrate your plan. So Pharaoh sets Joseph, who earlier in the day was in the dungeon, now as the second in command in all of Egypt, the most powerful nation on the face of the earth at the time. <laughs> just, it's crazy to think about. He sets him up as the prime minister in Egypt, basically. In reality, it wasn't just Egypt that was experiencing this famine. When the famine came, the whole region experienced, and they all came to Egypt to bow At Joseph's feet to get food. You see, a slave in a foreign land has now become, number six, the leader in all of the land. The stage is set for Genesis chapter 42 when the famine would affect Jacob and Joseph's brothers. Chapter 42, verse 1, it says, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So we see here the brothers coming to bow the knee to Joseph. Just like his dreams said over 20 years ago when the brothers get to egypt they get in front of joseph but they don't recognize him i'm sure he probably had his egyptian makeup on or whatever they wore and he's 20 years older going from a scrawny 17 year old boy to now a man and they don't recognize their brother so as they stand there joseph accuses them of being a spy and he sends them back home and says, you say you have another brother. Bring him here so I can meet him. This was Benjamin, Joseph's full-blooded brother that he had never met. So they go home with some food and they come back again in their time of need and they bring Benjamin with them. And Joseph knows see notices a change in his brothers a disposition change of course benjamin was favored by jacob because he was also a son from rachel but instead of being jealous of benjamin his brothers are now protective of him it says in verse 29 and he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother benjamin his mother's son And he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. And what you see, this process Over the next few chapters, Joseph becomes the restorative brother. Joseph sends his brothers home with bags full of grain. But he tells his servant, fill their bags full of grain. Put the money they brought to to buy the grain back into their bags. Take my silver cup and put it in the bags that Benjamin will be carrying. so he sends them away and he tells the servant go fetch them the servant goes and says how come my master shows you such favor and you steal the money and my master's silver cup bringing his brothers back to egypt to stand before joseph almost as if they are on trial brothers thinking that they are going to surely die for their theft. And he notices a change because his brother Judah, who sold him into slavery, steps up and says, I'll take the punishment. Blame, take, I'll take the blame. Blame. He sees the change in his brothers, and it says in chapter 45, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood before him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it, and Joseph said to his brothers, Man, this has to be one of the greatest scenes in all of literature. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. For they were dismayed at his presence. You have to think, what were all the thoughts going through their minds? Is this really Joseph? Could he be alive? Is he going to kill us because we sold him into slavery? All of these many thoughts that were running through their brain. So verse 4, so Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For This is key here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Does he condemn them? No. Does he enact vengeance against them? No. What does Joseph understand? God is sovereign. God is in control. God sent me here to preserve life. So we see last of all, the last portrait here is their reunited son. A couple chapters later, Joseph sends his brothers back to get his father Jacob and Jacob comes with all of the family and they move to Egypt so Joseph could take care and provide for all of the family there in Egypt in chapter 48 Jacob blesses Joseph's sons in chapter 49 Jacob blesses his sons according to Joseph and Judah and then at the end of chapter 49 Jacob passes away you know I can think of what Joseph must have thought through all of these different stages in life. You know, I heard one pastor say once that we all at some point ask the Joseph question. The Joseph question is, God, what are you doing in my life? What are you doing in my life? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever been in that stage of life and you've thought, what is is happening what is happening god what are you doing this whole story sets up the punchline for genesis chapter 20 and i'm convinced this is the best punchline in all of the old testament after jacob had died scripture says that joseph's brothers were afraid now that his father had died that joseph was going to now get revenge on his brothers says in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. He says, as for you, this is Joseph speaking, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What does this verse mean? He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We see the providence and sovereignty of God at work all throughout the story of Joseph. What does the providence of God mean? What can we learn from God about this story? What do we learn about the characteristic and attribute of God from this story? First, we can see that God is the ever subtle king. What I find interesting about this story is that you don't find any overwhelming, breathtaking displays of God's supernatural power. There's no parting of the Red Sea. There's no miraculous thing that happens uh, overtly. Instead, what we see is the subtle indicators all along the way that point us to the invisible hand of God that is working and moving throughout Joseph's life. Let's look at Chapter 45, verse 5. We looked at it before. This is when Joseph's brothers reveal, Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers. This is Joseph, he confronts his brothers about their actions and he says, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph is saying to his brothers, You sold me, but it was God who sent me. Don't miss that. It was God who was working. God did this. When I was sold into slavery, God was at work. When I was thrown into prison, God was at work. When I was summoned to Pharaoh, that was God at work. Notice what Joseph doesn't say. Well, you sold me, but God figured out a way to make it turn good. Joseph is saying that God is in control of the entire story. How does this work? How can the brothers sell him and God sent him? This is where we see in the Old Testament and throughout all of Scripture, two undeniable truths in Scripture. First, we see God's divine sovereignty. God sent Joseph to be a slave and a prisoner. We can agree that God had been control the, throughout the whole picture, but that does not mean that his brothers had nothing to do with it. His brothers were a player in this story. So we see God's divine sovereignty working through this story, but there is also this idea of human responsibility. So the picture here of divine sovereignty and human responsibility side by side. You might ask Pastor Robert, how do you reconcile those two together? unexplainable but at the same time undeniable because we see it all throughout Scripture. What we have to be careful is to examine here is that the responsibility of man cannot be ignored. When we think about the sovereignty of God, we can't think that that we as human beings are just some puppets in a play. We have responsibility and choices in, in this life that we are held responsible for. The responsibility of man in this life cannot be ignored, but the will of God cannot be stopped. God will carry out what he intends, guaranteed even in the worst of circumstances. Through slavery, through prison, Joseph still said, it was God who sent me. It was God. So we see he is the ever subtle king. We also see that he is the ever faithful savior. Let's not miss where God's providence and sovereignty are leading. This story shows us that God keeps his promises. Remember the dreams that Joseph had at the beginning of chapter 37? Do those dreams come true? (laughs) Absolutely. All of the land came to bow before Joseph. Think about how this happened. The brother's efforts to destroy the dreamer ended up fulfilling his dreams. Isn't that amazing? The efforts to destroy the dreamer ended up fulfilling his dreams. That was not their plans. You see, the will of God cannot be stopped. So what are the implications for us today when we think about this characteristic of God? There are three glaring truths that we can apply to our lives. If you're walking through pain or difficulty right now, which I know many of you in this room are, I want you to take these and apply them to your life. These truths can help prepare you for pain and difficulty that might also lie ahead. We see that we have a king who is guiding us. What does this mean for your life? It means that God does not ignore the details of your life. He knows what each and every one of you are going through. Not only does he know, but he is working with his ever subtle hand in the aspects of your life. Yes, God, do you see what is happening? God, do you care about what is happening? Know this, God is not overlooking the details, but God is orchestrating all of those details in your life not in some robotic way like a puppet, not in a way that you or others are not responsible for sinful decisions. Instead, just like in this story, we see God working behind the scenes to bring Joseph to the right place at the right time. And he is doing that in your life as well. You look at Joseph's life. You could take each and one of the isolated instances and label each one a tragedy. But when you put all of these portraits together, you see this beautiful tapestry of God's grace that God has woven through Joseph's life to bring about great good. God is orchestrating a variety of instances in a variety of people all at the same time. This is something that we have to think about. Do you realize that your life and my life— are the not the only lives that God is working in and through on this earth? This may come as a stock, you know, a stunning realization to some of you because we are all so centric around our own lives and our own what's happening in our own, our own house. But God is working through all seven billion people who call this earth home. That doesn't mean that he is not intimately involved in the details of our lives because he is. What it does mean is that when we ask the Joseph question, God, what are you doing in my life? The answer may actually be about what he is actually doing in someone else's life. That God is using us to help come to fruition. Look at the things that were accomplished through this story. God brought Joseph to a place of humility. He brought Joseph's brothers to a point of confession for their sin. He brought Jacob to the ultimate point of fulfillment. God is weaving all of this together. And don't miss this in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He's bringing all together for good, always for good. This truth that is reiterated by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Based on that truth, let that sink in when thinking about your life. We also see God's providence is the only foundation for embracing life's pain. I'll let that sink in. It's the only foundation for embracing life's pain. There are many people today who would call themselves Christians that are throwing away the doctrine of God's sovereignty and his providence. They say that God doesn't know. God doesn't have control. God is not in control of the future. Think about that. how that kind of worldview clashes with the story of Joseph. I see you in the, jo- in the dungeon, Joseph. Let's just see how everything turns out in the end. <laughs> That's that worldview. That is a shallow worldview. That is a sinking worldview. Joseph stands on the rock of this truth. When he confronts his brothers, think about this. Joseph is free from bitterness. He is free from revenge, from hatred. He is free from all of those things. Why? Because he knows that God's providence is the only way, the only foundation for embracing life's pain. Why? When he gets out of prison and, and, and number two in Egypt, he doesn't lash out at Potiphar's wife for lying. He doesn't go off on the cupbear for forgetting about him in prison. He doesn't stand before his brothers and condemn them. Instead, he tells them what? Come near to me. God did this. Man, how freeing is that? How freeing is that attitude? Joseph knows that God takes evil and turns it into good. And that gives us, as believers, freedom. When we think about the sin that has been committed against us in this life. Think about this. The evil words and actions of sinful men and women against you. The people that have wanted to or have even harmed you. God takes their evil actions against you and uses it for good. And that frees you up from bitterness, revenge, and hatred for them because you can rejoice and say, thank you, God, I know that you are in control and you will use this for your glory and for my good. He takes the evil and turns it into good. He takes the suffering and turns it into satisfaction. Genesis chapter 41, verses 51 and 52. This is Joseph when he names his sons. Listen to what Joseph names his sons. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all of my hardship and all of my father's house. The name of my second is called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God takes the land of my of the affliction in your life, and he bears fruit. That is true. That is a cornerstone that we can stand on. God takes suffering in our lives and he can turn it into satisfaction. God's providence is the only foundation for embracing life's pain. Let's not limit the character of God and think it will bring us comfort. Let's see God as supreme and find comfort in his greatness. How do we really know? Maybe you're at a dark point in your life. How do you know that the evil being perpetrated against you is going to be used for good? How do you know suffering is going to bring about satisfaction? That leads us to the last truth. And I want this one to lodge in your heart. We know because we have a Savior who has redeemed us. Don't miss the parallels in this story. It's, the parallels are phenomenal. God used dreadful sin to preserve his people here in Genesis. Brothers selling their own brother into slavery. What shame and dishonor, setting the stage one day when God would use a dreadful sin to save his people for all of eternity. When God will take those who falsely accuse and murder Christ on a cross, he will use that dreadful sin to bring about. Salvation for all mankind, for all of eternity. The parallels get better, listen to this. In both stories, God takes the sin of the destroyer and makes them the means of their deliverance. Brothers wanting nothing but harm toward Joseph, selling him into slavery. God takes their sin against them to provide for their own deliverance one day. Their sin provides for their deliverance. On the cross, picture it. They are nailing Christ to a cross, and we, in a sense, with them each time they drove those nails in his hands and his feet. But do they realize, as they crucify him, that their murderous sin is actually making it possible for the forgiveness of their sin? Man. What a parallel. It's crazy. That makes no sense to the people of the world. But that is the gospel. Think about Joseph as he reveals his identity to his brothers. And instead of cursing them and condemning them in their sin, what does he say? Come near to me. Come near to me because of your sin against me. I can now provide for you see yourself before christ the one you have sinned against his holiness his righteousness and instead hearing curses and condemnation what do we hear christ say to us come near to me because of your sin against me i can now provide salvation to you he has redeemed us don't miss these parallels in this story ultimately joseph is in scripture not so we can walk away and say wow what a great ancient story in the bible no joseph is in scripture to point us to jesus and i want you to think back to the eight portraits of joseph that we started this sermon with and think about jesus I know the parallels aren't exact, but picture with me. The favorite son of the father who came to this earth despised by his fellow men. He humbled himself and became a slave in a foreign land, pure and righteous in every way. He was slandered and sentenced to death upon a cross. You see, God did it. It was the will of the father that sent Jesus to the cross for that awful act. God ordained that sinful men would murder his only son so that he might be raised as Lord over all the lands so that it might be said from every corner of the earth, bow the knee before him. Jesus made a way for you and I to be restored The Father. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he became the reunited Son. And as he promises you and me full and final redemption, this is how you can know that no matter how dark, no matter how deep this world gets, that evil will be turned to good and suffering into satisfaction. You can know that because this grand story of redemption, the one who saved us from our sins, will one day glorify us together with him. Guaranteed. Stand on that rock. Because it is guaranteed. Let's pray.